Good morning. Well, it got quiet really quick. My name's Tom. I preach at a biker church here in Appleton. Normally, I'm wearing a, a vest with patches on it and a hat and sunglasses, and it feels like those are my preaching clothes. So today I thought I'd, I'd wear one of our shop shirts with our logo on it with Bikers for Christ. Um, what a joy it is to serve the Lord an avenue that he's provided for, for myself and for my, my brothers that ride bike to be able to minister to people on the highway and at gas stations and places like that uh, and tell them about Jesus. And, you know, a lot of us guys will get together and, yeah, let's go to Sturgis or let's go to a rally, let's go to Daytona, and we're going to do awesome ministry there. You know where the ministry usually happens? At the gas station. Hey, man, nice bike. Oh, thanks a lot. It's my ministry tool. Your what? My ministry tool. And then I get to tell them about the Lord, you know, and, and how he's provided and how uh, he gave me a cool motorcycle and I can praise him and tell people about him with it. And what a neat opportunity. And uh, as we go on to minister, I'm thinking about our, our, our verse this morning in Luke 18, that nothing is impossible with God. And uh, I'm proof of that because, you know, I, I was a biker before I came to, to, to the Lord. And uh, I never thought I'd be preaching. Not something I wanted to do. I felt like, uh, like Moses. I'm slow to speak and, you know, not real eloquent and all that. Maybe that's why he has me working with bikers because they don't care. <laughs> you know, you guys would probably rather see a guy with a tie on and, and well-schooled and all that. But you, you, this is what you get this morning. Uh, I've seen a lot of pretty hardcore dudes come to Christ. And, and, and it is a miracle. It's a miracle that, that God has done. And what a cool thing to see that. Uh, somebody that you've, I don't want to say you gave up hope on, but you're thinking there's no way that this person's ever going to come to Christ. And boom, God says, watch what I can do. And it's mind-blowing to see this. So let's go ahead and get into Luke 18. Uh, we'll start at verse 25. A little intro here to, uh, we're going to be going to Luke 19 next. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who have heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And in your Bible, that might be red letters. And if it is, that's Jesus talking. And you know what, if Jesus said it, you can take that to the bank. And I like that. In Luke 19, we're going to see the conversion of Zacchaeus. You know, and we see the truth in, in Luke 18, 27, where it says the things that which are impossible with men are possible with God. Zacchaeus was a rich man. And ordinarily it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's because a lot of rich people love their stuff. They love money more than God. Let's read about it in Luke 19, verse 1 through 5. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to 19. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. I don't know if any of you know who my wife is, Trish. I think she's four foot seven. She's of short stature. Um, so when I think about Zacchaeus, I think about somebody about her size. And you know, I've, I've taken her to events where she can't see anything, so I can imagine Zacchaeus's predicament that he's small, he can't see what's going on. We went to a concert one time, and I bought reserved seating, thinking that this is going to be great, my wife's going to be able to see the whole show. And everybody stood up to the whole concert. And we had folding chairs. And believe it or not, we were in the last row. She could stand in a folding chair and she wasn't still as tall as I am. And the security guards made her get off the chair. So if there would have been a tree there, maybe I could have pushed her up into that like Zacchaeus is going to do here in just a minute. So he ran ahead, verse 4, and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, 
Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Isn't that odd? Jesus is walking through the crowd, the multitude, and notices some little dude up in a tree and says, come on down here. I'm going to come to your house. Imagine what Zacchaeus is thinking, you know. Um, Although Zacchaeus is a tax collector and probably hated by a lot of people because we'll see later, you know, how they took advantage of people um, money-wise, but he wasn't ashamed to do something wild and crazy, you know, so he could see Jesus. So Zacchaeus runs ahead of the crowd and climbs into the tree along the, the route that the Lord is taking. You know, and I imagine Zacchaeus as being a chubby little guy, you know, probably not in shape because he has a desk job. You know, I, I got a desk job a year ago. I think I gained 40 pounds. So if I had to climb a tree, <laughs> better get me a lift or something because I'm not doing it. So I imagined... The work it must have been for Zacchaeus to climb that tree as an out-of-shape guy. But the scriptures say, because my my mind goes one way, the scriptures get me back on track. The scriptures say that he ran and that he climbed the tree. So he must have been really in decent enough shape to do that. And he must have really, really, really wanted to see Jesus. Zacchaeus wanted to see a man But in the end, he saw a savior. Zacchaeus wanted to see a wonder. And in the end, Zacchaeus was made into a wonder himself. Now, this act of faith didn't go unnoticed. As Jesus came near, he looked up and he sees Zacchaeus in the tree. And Jesus asked Zacchaeus to come down quickly. And then Jesus invites himself to the tax collector's house. Can you imagine the look on everybody's face? Now, can you imagine the look on the Pharisee's face? You're going to go eat with this guy? Can you imagine the look on Zacchaeus' face? Jesus wants me to hang out with him? You know, I, I'm betting that right now Zacchaeus is hoping the house is clean, right? You know, there was no cell phones back then. Hey, honey, get the house cleaned up. Jesus is coming over. I think that's probably an indication we should keep our house clean all the time, right? Because you never know when Jesus is going to come. Amen? You know, this is the only case on record where Jesus invited himself to a home. I like that. Verse 6, So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. So Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus did as he was told and received Jesus with great joy. Jesus wanted to come to his house. Can you imagine how Zacchaeus felt? You know, Jesus the Lord wants to hang out with him. Now in in verse 6, it said Zacchaeus received him joyfully. I believe at this time Zacchaeus realized who Jesus might be. As for the Pharisees, Jesus' critics, they all complained against him because he went to be a guest with a man who was a known sinner. Sometimes in biker ministry, we have to hang out with people that other people consider to be bad or extreme sinners, whatever it might be. And uh, here we see Jesus doing it, you know. Sometimes those people are the ones that are hurting the most. Sometimes those people are the most open to listen to something because they know something's missing. They just haven't figured out what it is. And a lot of times they'll see, this is our logo with Bikers for Christ, they'll say, We know we've done that religion thing. I'm not all about that. I don't like religion, they would say. And I said, I don't like religion either. Here's an example of Jesus, you know, not being liked by the religious uh, leaders of the day. So then I have an opportunity to tell them, you know what, I'm just like you are. I don't like it either. But let me tell you about a relationship with Jesus. And I tell them, uh, a lot of times I go to Psalm 139. And let them know that their days were fashioned before they were even born. Let them know that the Lord thinks of them like their sands in the sea and stars in the sky. And that he's always there when we get up and go to bed. And when they start hearing about somebody who cares for them with no limits, suddenly it's not religion anymore. It's 
suddenly it's relationship. And a lot of guys will get that. So we see Jesus hanging out with a known sinner. Verse 8, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Salvation had brought a radical change in the life of the tax collector. You know, salvation brings a radical change in a lot of people. And a lot of times you can see that. It's like, what happened to Billy over here? He was so much fun to hang out and party with, and now he's different. Billy's different because he has Jesus now. A radical change has happened. Remember, tax collectors are known for collecting what the government required. Anything more they could shake out of you was their pay. So Zacchaeus being a little dude, I wonder how much he could really shake out of these guys to get extra money, right? He must have had some thugs that he hired to rough people up a little bit uh, to get some extra money. A lot of times tax collectors would rip people off and they would say pay up or go to jail, trying to get what they can for their own gain. Zacchaeus now tells Jesus that he intends to give half of his goods to the poor. Wow. Could you imagine giving up half of your stuff that you have right now to the poor? It'd be hard, wouldn't it? And how do you cut a motorcycle in half, right? You know, up to this time, Zacchaeus was gouging as many people and as much money as possible from the poor. He also planned to make a fourfold, or pay back four times, the amount of restitution for any money that he had gained dishonestly. That's more than the law demanded. It showed that Zacchaeus was now motivated by love. Where before, he's mastered by greed and money and stuff. So there's really not much doubt that Zacchaeus had taken things dishonestly. But his statement, and if I have, if I have wrongfully taken, there's no if about that, is there? Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. So Jesus plainly says that salvation had come to the house of Zacchaeus because he was a son of Abraham. But salvation did not come because Zacchaeus was a Jew by birth. The expression a son of Abraham means that means more than his natural descent as a Jew, but that Zacchaeus exercised the same faith in the Lord that Abraham had. There's our comparison. And salvation did not come to Zacchaeus' house because of his charity. It didn't come to his house because of the restitution. I mean, those are just an effect of salvation, not the cause. We don't go and, and, and do good things to get acceptance by the Lord. Those good things that we do are, are an effect of, of salvation, an effect of that relationship with the Lord. So here's the point of today's message, and then check this out. Verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. An answer to those who criticized him for hanging out with sinners. Zacchaeus here in our story, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save which was lost. In other words, the conversion of Zacchaeus was a fulfillment of the very purpose of Christ coming into the world. And let's be really clear about this, that there's no conversion without first conviction and repentance. And you know, if you're talking to a biker about this, if you start saying conviction, repentance, and all that kind of stuff, you're going to lose them because they don't understand that stuff. Those are big fancy church words. But a lot of these guys realize that they're a sinner. And when we talk about repentance, I tell them, you know what that means, brother? Slam on the brakes. Spin your bike around and head in the other direction. That's repentance. Don't even bother looking in the mirror. Because all you're going to see back there is smoke. It's going to cloud your judgment. So just keep going the other way. They get that. Here, because you guys are pretty knowledgeable, I'll use conviction and repentance all day long. Because you get it. So Jesus' concern was with those who were lost. And then these, we're going to read some, some parables here next. And we're going to see 
how precious something is that is loved but is also lost. So let's turn to Luke 15, and we're going to look at the parable of the lost coin. Start in verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I like that. There's joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Imagine more than one sinner. Imagine the party in heaven. Our uh, national headquarters for Bikers for Christ is in San Diego, and when they do a biker baptism... You know what they do? They have a party too. They have a horse trough, and they'll dunk the guy down and bring him up and baptize him. If he needs a little extra holding down, they'll hold him down until they see the bubble stop. And, well, they're bikers, so, you know, they could probably go a step further, but let's not go there. And they bring him back up out of the water, and as they do that, the motorcycles start up, and they all rev their motorcycles to the glory of God. What a cool thing. And that's how they do it. In heaven... The angels are rejoicing. On earth, the bikers are rejoicing. The brothers are. Why not join in that celebration? Now we're talking about a coin that's lost. Well, if you lost a penny, would you probably go looking for it at night with a flashlight? Probably not. I'd do it for a 50-cent piece. That's where my, my getting up and looking for something starts at. Uh, if it's smaller than that, my kids will find it guaranteed. The coin that she's looking for is likely an eighth ounce of silver. And the woman in the story may represent the Holy Spirit seeking the lost with a lamp. And the lamp would be the word of God. And she couldn't wait until the light of day. The coin needed to be found right now. You know, in, in thinking about that, I don't want to wait till tomorrow to find somebody who's lost that needs to hear about Jesus. I will get up and I will get my flashlight out to find somebody who's lost that needs to hear about the Lord. The nine coins speak of the unrepentant or those unwilling to turn from, them, from their sins, but the one lost coin suggests the man who was willing to confess he is out of touch with God. The coin being an inanimate object might suggest the lifeless condition of a sinner. He's dead in sins. The woman continues to search carefully for the coin until she finds it. And she calls her friends and neighbors to have a celebration. And the lost coin she found brought her more true pleasure than the nine others that had not been lost. And so it is with God, the sinner who humbles himself, the sinner who confesses, His lost condition brings joy to the heart of God. And God doesn't get that joy from those who never feel their need for repentance. You know, it it saddens me because there's some people that I know that are the most excellent people I've probably ever met in my life. They don't know the Lord, and they don't have that need. They don't feel that need, I should say. They do have it. They don't feel it. And they live a charmed life, and they do everything right, but they don't know the Lord. And how do I convince that person they have a need for a Savior? Something I'm praying about. In the parable of the lost sheep, in Luke 15, verses 1 through 7, let's go there. I then, all the tax uh, then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him and to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, the, the Pharisees are always seem to be, they're getting bent out of shape because of who Jesus hung out with. They resented the fact that Jesus hung out with people who were big-time sinners. You know, I'm glad that this church isn't like the Pharisees. Because when Dwight sees me out hanging out with, with, with guys that are hardcore biker dudes, Dwight's like, right on, brother. You know, this is great. He's been there too. 
You know, but here the Pharisees are having a problem with them. And wherever Jesus found people who were willing to acknowledge their sin, he gravitates towards them and gave them spiritual help and blessings. And the Pharisees didn't show grace on these social and moral lepers. You know, they were unclean. Nobody wanted to go by them. Nobody wanted to talk to them. But Jesus didn't have a problem with it because he knew that they would recognize their condition and come to him joyfully, like Zacchaeus running and climbing up a tree. Verse 3. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the thirty-nine in the wilderness? Or ninety-nine, I'm sorry. I should put my glasses back on. Don't laugh. When you're old, you'll need these too. Ninety-nine in the wilderness, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. So the ninety-nine sheep represent the scribes and the Pharisees. The lost sheep typifies a tax collector or an acknowledged sinner. When the shepherd realizes that one of his sheep is lost, he leaves the ninety-nine in the wilderness, not in the fold, and goes out after it until it is found. Verse five, and when he finished it, or when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Having found the sheep, it says, Jesus, uh, he lays it on his shoulders and take it home, the, the, the shepherd. You know, the, the saved sheep enjoys a place of privilege and intimacy that it never knew as long as it was numbered with the others. It's like we're going to um, we talk about the prodigal son. He ends up in a place that he would have never been in uh, in favor of it with his father. And here it is showing the sheep too, when it's lost, it, it gets put on the shoulders and in an intimate place, a place of privilege. The shepherd calls his friends and neighbors to rejoice with him. You know, this speaks of the Savior's joy in seeing a sinner repent. I can just imagine in my mind's eye the Lord in heaven and somebody comes to a saving knowledge of him and the angels are up there rejoicing and Jesus is rejoicing and, and isn't there nothing better than to rejoice with your friends, to share that moment with your friends. Um, I had the opportunity and the blessing to go to Israel this year and I got to go last year. Um, talk about things that are impossible with men are, not, are, are, are possible with God. There's two good examples right there. And one of the coolest things that I was among friends. And we could go and we could look at something and we could be somewhere and we could enjoy it together. Man, that was great. And, and here we have Jesus rejoicing with his angels, you know, his, his friends. I, I guess if you want to call them friends, but people that, you know, family and that you enjoy being around and all that. There's nothing better than to experience something awesome with those people. So the lesson is clear. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's no joy over the 99 sinners who have never been convicted of their lost condition. In verse 7 where it says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need repentance does not actually mean that there are some persons who need no repentance. You know, the fact is all men are sinners All must repent in order to be saved. It's important to remember that. Every one of us has a choice. It's not a universal thing where Jesus died and everybody's automatically going to heaven. Jesus died so that everybody can, by choosing Jesus and knowing him, go to heaven. That is for everybody. But everybody doesn't automatically go. You have to make a choice for him. Let's go to Luke 15, verse 11 through 32. We're going to look at the parable of the lost son. So this, you see there's a pattern here. 
things that are lost, and then they're found, and there's great joy. You know, I didn't really realize I was lost before I came to Christ. I grew up in a denomination, and I thought, I'm probably good enough. I'm better than this guy. I'm better than that guy. But I knew there was something wrong. I knew there was something missing. And no matter what I did to try to find joy, to find contentment, to find something that would just... I'm always looking for the next big thing back then. You know, maybe if I get a, a, a faster motorcycle, I'll be happy. Or maybe if I buy, you know, a bigger truck, I'll be happy. Or maybe if I buy a better house, I'll be happy. And nothing ever worked. It worked for 15 minutes, felt really good, and then all of a sudden it was just uh, normal, you know. And when people don't realize that there's something wrong, that's where it gets tough. Luckily, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me, and I started coming to Calvary Chapel with my wife. And I started listening to the word, and that's what got me. So this is so true. This is something I can't ignore. This is dependable. I believe it. And I have no choice but to you know, get on my knees and accept Christ. And the joy that comes with that, the joy that came with that, many of you know that. With the parable of the lost son, verse 11, he said, A certain man had two sons, and a younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he, he went and joined himself to a citizen of the country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. <clears throat> so the prodigal is one who recklessly and wastefully spends his money. The son got, a, he got sick of his dad's place. I'm, I'm sure we've all been there, right? Got sick of his rules, and he said, I'm out of here. I'm gone. And he could not wait for his father to die to receive his inheritance, so he asked his dad, he's like, hey, dad, you know, can you, can you front me the money ahead of time? Because I, I got stuff I want to do. He wanted to party hardy. He didn't want to take that money and invest it. He didn't want to take that money and, and uh, start a business. He wanted to go have a good time. So the father gives him his proper share. And shortly after, the younger son set out into a far country and spent his money freely in sinful pleasures. You know, in modern times, you know, these days, I guess, you know, the son probably, maybe he went to Mardi Gras. Or maybe he went on a tropical, tropical vacation. And uh, the whole while he's doing this, he's looking for pleasures of all kinds, you know. You name it. He's got money, he's going to go and have a good time. And as soon as his cash is gone, a severe depression grips the land and he finds himself destitute. Have you ever found yourself destitute? <clears throat> you know, back when I was a heathen and I was doing my biker thing, I was going to motorcycle mechanic school. And I believed in God, but I didn't know who God was. And I didn't have any money. I was destitute. I was a student. I was living in Florida. And it was Thanksgiving. And I had about 3 or $4 to my name. And I thought I could either take the 3 or $4 and I could fill my motorcycle up with gas because back in 1987, gas was probably, what, $1.15 or something. Or I could go and I could buy myself a sandwich at the 7-Eleven a block down the street. Well, my stomach won, and I walked down to the 7-Eleven to buy a sandwich. And I was about to cross the street to go to the 7-Eleven. I looked down, and there in the gutter of the road was a $5 bill. And I couldn't believe it. So now I had $5. I could go to the all-you-can-eat place for $5 and, 
and have $3 for gas for my bike. And even as I was a, a heathen then, and I didn't know the Lord, I still thanked God for that $5 bill, you know? And I think it was, as I look back, it was God's way of, of letting me know that he was always there with me, even when I didn't know it. And it was a, a lousy five bucks, right? But that five bucks made a difference for my Thanksgiving. That five bucks made a difference for me being full. And as I sat and ate, I had, in Florida, they had a helmet law at the time. I thought, you know what? I could fill my full-face helmet with chicken, and nobody would ever know. And I could eat for two more days. But even then, being a sinner, and not knowing the Lord, I didn't do it. Because I knew somehow God blessed me with that $5 bill, and I wasn't going to let him down and steal chicken from the all-you-can-eat buffet in my helmet. I couldn't do it. But it shows you that, you know, God is with us. And in those little things, there's blessings. And, and here we show, you know, this destitute young man who, who blew all of his money. And the only job he could find is feeding pigs, a job that would be distasteful to a Jewish guy. It'd be distasteful. As he watched the pigs eat their bean pods, he envied them. Here this guy went from having his father's inheritance to envying what the pigs are eating. And it seems like nobody wanted to help him out. You know, the friends that he had from his Mardi Gras days, his party buddies, the women that he had, they were all gone, just like his cash. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have bread enough to spare, and I will perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's willing to go back and beg his dad for a job. He's remembering that his father's, father's hired hands were living far more comfortably than he was. They had plenty to eat. And the famine in the land, <clears throat> here's something bad that turns into something good. The famine in the land proves to be a blessing in disguise. And makes him think about what's going on back home. The young man decides to do something about it. You know, sometimes we're in a pretty bad spot too. And we have a choice to wallow in the mud or to take action. You know, do something. He decided to go to his father in repentance, acknowledging his sin. And seeking his pardon. You know, when you're a dad... Imagine how it would feel to have your, your son or your daughter come up and say, hey, you were right, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I want to make this right. Probably a lot of us would like to have, have heard that or would like to hear that. And here we have a father that is going to embrace his son. He realizes that he's no longer worthy to be called his father's son, and after all that he had done, you know, he, he plans to ask for a job as a hired servant. Dad, you know what? I don't deserve to be treated as one of your sons, but hire me as a servant. That's all he's asking. Verse 20, And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Wow. Oh, but that's not the reaction the son thought he was going to get. It says that the father ran to him. So a lot of people running. Zacchaeus is running. The father is running. You know, if that was me coming home, my dad was, was a Marine, right? If I saw my dad running towards me, <laughs> I wouldn't think a hug was coming. <laughs> so this, this fellow, we don't know, but I think he was quite surprised. You know, in this parable, it shows us, Jesus shows us what God does. 
God was not waiting for a shamed child to slink home or standing on the father's dignity when he came, but running out to gather him. Shamed and ragged, muddied as he was, into the father's welcoming arms. Imagine the shame. He's out slopping pigs. He's dirty. He's working with something that's disgusting to Jewish people. And the dad doesn't come up and give him a hug and say, hey, you smell like pigs. What were you doing? He doesn't do any of that. He just welcomes him and gives him a kiss and a hug. Wow, and that's what our Heavenly Father does. Our Heavenly Father doesn't say, hey, you know, I know what you've been doing and and it's not good. Our Heavenly Father says, welcome home, and runs to us and gives us that hug. It doesn't matter what you've done. I've talked to some people that I had the opportunity to minister to, and uh, some of the things they told me they've done, I, I won't even repeat. And uh, they couldn't understand how they could be forgiven for doing those things. And uh, I got to tell them about the Father's love, and one of the fellas accepted Christ right there at his kitchen table. And as he was telling me about the stuff he did, I finally had to stop him because it was bad stuff. But I said, you know what? There's not a sin that God can't forgive. And as we went through some of the scriptures and we talked, he wanted to pray to accept Christ. This is one hardcore biker dude. And it wasn't long after that he passed away, maybe a week, and I got to preach his funeral. And I got to preach his funeral with joy because I knew that he had accepted Christ because I was sitting there when he did it. And as we sat at the table, I told him the angels are rejoicing in heaven right now. Let's go back to our story, verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. You know, I'm reading this. The robe is something I didn't expect him to have. The ring on his hand is something I didn't expect him to have. But sandals on his feet? This dude's walking around barefooted. For those of you that have been to Israel, there are more rocks in Israel, I think, than any other place on the planet Earth. And the last place I'd want to be walking barefoot. But here it says that the father brought him sandals for his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. There's a celebration. They're going to have prime rib. I'm there. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So the son comes back. And he's going to ask his dad for a job. But the father interrupts him and orders the servants to put on the best robe on his son. Tells them to put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. The father also ordered a great feast to celebrate the return of his son who had been lost, but now he's found. And as far as the father was concerned, he had been dead, but now he's alive. You know, the the young man, like a lot of people, are looking for a good time. But he did not find it in a far country. He found it only when he had the good sense to come back to his father's house. It had been pointed out that they began to be merry, but it is never recorded that their joy ended. And so it is with the salvation of the sinner. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So this is the older brother. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. You know, the older older son returns from the field and hears the sound of this huge celebration. He asks the servant what's going on. He tells him his younger brother has returned home, and his father's delirious with joy. Well, watch what happens here. This This is human nature. Verse 28, but he was angry and would not go in. 
Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never made me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. He's having a pity party. You never even made me a goat so I could have fun with my friends. I've been here the whole time. Verse 30, but as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you kill the fatted calf for him. Well, you know, the older son, he's, he's mad because he didn't have a party. His father urged him to celebrate, and he refuses and whines about never being rewarded. He complained that the prodigal son returns, and after spending his father's money on harlots, the father did not hesitate to make a great feast. He said, this son of yours is not my brother. Wow. Imagine, they call it a buzzkill, right? The, the father is so rejoicing that the, that, the, that the prodigal son is home. And the older son is doing nothing but complain about it. Killing his joy. Verse 31, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. He's telling his son that this is the right thing to do. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And you know, the father's answer, I think this is important, the father's answer shows that there is joy connected with the restoration of a lost one. Whereas an ungrateful, unreconciled son produces no cause for celebration. The older son is a really good picture of the scribes and the Pharisees. They resented God's showing mercy to outrageous sinners. The Pharisees' way of thinking, not God's, they had served him faithfully, never broken any commandments, yet never been properly rewarded for all this. They're thinking, you know, why is Jesus hanging out with Zacchaeus? Why is Jesus hanging out with these sinners when he should be hanging out with us here in the temple and, you know, let, let's, let's have a good time. But we never got it, is what the Pharisees are thinking here. But he's going with these other guys that he should never be talking to. <laughs> That's their thinking. The truth was, they're religious hypocrites and guilty sinners. Their pride had blinded them, and they're distant to God. They're blind to the fact that God had lavished blessings upon them. If only they had been willing to repent and to acknowledge their sins, then the Father's heart would have been gladdened, and they too would have been cause of great celebration. So let's begin to wrap things up here. So we got to see some pictures of things that were lost and found, and the joy in finding them. You know, there's a lot of Christian motorcycle clubs all over the U.S., all over the world. I think Bikers for Christ is in 12 countries or 19 countries, something like that. And a lot of them have clever names like Exodus Riders. They have names like Bikers for Christ. They have names Shepherds on Steel, you know. And while they serve many purposes such as fellowship and group rides and serving others, most of them have a primary calling, and that's sharing the love of Jesus Christ to the world of motorcycle riders and enthusiasts and anyone else they may meet. You know, my ministry isn't exclusively bikers. It's anybody. Sometimes I'll be somewhere and I'll say, hey, how's it going? And they'll say, okay. And you can tell by the look on their face, it isn't okay. And I'll say, hey, what's really going on? Because I can see by the look on your face, you're not okay. And they'll open up and talk a little bit. But God has given me a grace with the bikers that a lot of people can't approach. And praise the Lord for that. The motorcycle ministries and, and, and uh, their associations are especially concerned with bikers who are lost in, in need of a Savior. These three parables that we read, Jesus exposes God's heart when it comes to people. You know, he shows us God is more focused on what is lost than what is found. And one of the amazing things about Jesus was even though he considered he is considered a religious person, 
He spent very little time around religious people. Although he was a righteous person, he constantly put himself in front of unrighteous people. He claimed that he came from God, yet he spent very little time building relationships with godly people. You would think that the godliest, the most righteous, the most religious person would connect with godly, righteous, religious people, but in fact, the opposite is the case. People that are already found don't need to be found, do they? But that one that is lost needs to be found. And what's even more amazing to me is that when Jesus showed up on earth, the most ungodly, the most unrighteous people liked him. Right? I mean, that blows my mind. And they knew that they would never be like him, for he was in a different category, but they still liked him. They, 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 they were pulled towards him. And these people, they weren't intimidated. They weren't embarrassed. It was those kinds of people who flocked to Jesus to hear him speak. In fact, the ones who considered themselves holy and righteous were put off by the fact that Jesus continued to seek out relationships and connections with people who were nothing like him. The people the religious community would not accept. And if you read the New Testament, the local church, that's us, is supposed to be the hands, feet, and eyes and ears of Jesus. That means that we gather together and we're supposed to be as close as anybody would be to Jesus. Yet for some reason the church does not have the same effect on people that Jesus did when he was here on earth. Why is it that the unrighteous, ungodly, people want to be around Jesus, but they don't care much for the local church? You know, for some reason, we're not like Jesus in that way. Maybe some of you heard that story about the man who dressed up like a bum and hung out in front of the church and was seeing how many people said hello, how many people invited him in, yada, yada, yada. And uh, turns out it was the church's pastor in disguise. Boy, would I feel bad about that. So when I see somebody that I've never seen here before, I usually try to go out of my way to say hello. How are you? Welcome here. Sometimes I find out they've been coming here for 10 years. <laughs> I had no clue who they were. And then I, then I feel like the goofball. Um, but people want to, they, they want to welcome. They, sometimes they need that, that leading to come in. They want to feel welcome when they come in. So here's a question that we have to ask. Why was Jesus so attracted to those kind of people and why were those people attracted to him? The answer to that question and our willingness to embrace it will do more to revive our hearts and determine our future as a church than any other question or answer. In the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, we see God is more concerned with that is lost than what is found. And the way God sees the world is that there are lost people and there are found people. There are broken relationship people, and there are restored relationship people. There are prodigal sons, and there are sons who never left the farm. The challenge for us, every Christ follower, are we here for us, or are we here for them? The lost, the disinterested, the unrighteous, the disconnected. Will we continue to focus on the unreached and the disconnected, or will we become like the 99% of all other churches and Christians in America who focus on who's here, who's who, and what's in it for us. I've heard some people say that I don't go to church because I don't like the music that they play there. Well, you know what? We're not performing for you. The music is here to get your heart in the right place to worship God and receive a message. So if there's solid teaching going on at the church, if you don't like the music, that's not a good reason. It's not, don't come here for what makes you feel good. Come here to get a healthy meal of God's word. And I think that's what a lot of you do. But there's a lot of people that I get to talk to, you know, hey, Tommy, at the biker church, how come you guys don't have fog machines and cool lights and stuff like XYZ Church has? (laughs) Well, because we're not here to put a show on for you. 
and it's not in the budget. <laughs> no. um, it's not a show. It's, 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 we're worshiping the Lord. We should be able to do this out in the pig field. And people should want to come because of what's being preached. God is far, far more concerned with what is lost than what is found. And that's the reason that Jesus came. And he has invited us to be a part of his mission to seek and to save the lost. You know, he's inviting you to be part of his mission. To seek out and save the lost. And you might say, well, that's great. You know, you're a preacher. You can do that. Well, you know what? I didn't want to be a preacher. About four years ago, God put it on my heart that this is what I needed to do. And I stomped my feet and kicked and didn't want to do it. Here I am. So before that, what was the best way I could reach somebody for Christ? What's the best way you can reach somebody for Christ if you're not a preacher or a a great speaker or whatever the case might be? Give them your testimony. You don't have to start with all the bad stuff that happened, all the different things that are going on. You can start with, let me tell you what God's doing for me today. Or let me tell you how I met God, how I got saved, and where I am today, what he's done for me. That's good enough. You don't have to start with, back in 1978, I was, you know, and then you start going through the sin list. You don't really need to do that. And your testimony is something that's true and solid and nobody can take from you. And if you want to preach, that'll preach. So every person here has a testimony. Every person here is capable of reaching somebody who's lost, and God wants you to join him on that mission. They say the rapture is going to happen when the fulfillment of the Gentiles is complete. Well, there's people that still need to know the Lord, so get out there and start telling people. And we can go home. If you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus and you're here today, I don't think it's a coincidence. If you're hearing this message somehow, I don't think it's a coincidence that you're listening. But you can accept Jesus and turn from the sin in your life. Here's what the Bible says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life. Jesus is knocking on your heart's door. He's not going to barge in. He'll let you make the choice. But he's knocking. It's time to open up the door and invite him in and let him take over and clean up those things that aren't of the Lord. He'll do that for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the people that came today. Lord, I thank you for this church. Thank you for all the blessings that you pour out on us. And Lord, let us not forget that the one that is lost is highly valued and that we should be out with our flashlights seeking and searching for that one. Lord, I pray that you go before us throughout this next week. I pray for your protection and your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.